are you ready for the big day? Yeah, ready for that big day. Yeah, after weeks of kind of the unexpected and miracles apparently happening and weeks of celebration and not uh, spotlighting the famous, right, the loyal fans, it's a big day. So let me be the first to wish you a happy Quinquagesima Day. Oh, you were thinking football. I'm sorry, that's, that's for later. Quinquagesima, anybody ever heard of it? Me either. I, uh, it's actually the last Sunday of Epiphany. Not the Super Bowl, the last Sunday of Epiphany. And during the season of Epiphany, we rehearsed the stories. I wasn't lying. We rehearsed the stories of the unexpected, you know, the wise men, the Gentiles coming to visit the baby Jesus, the miracles of the baptism, the wedding celebration, the now famous disciples and loyal followers of Jesus. Quinqua Jazima just kind of rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? No, not for me either. But it is the last Sunday of Epiphany, the Sunday before Lent. And if you've got some sort of literary thing going on in your head, you can think Quinqua, maybe. Yeah, it's 50 days from now until Easter. That's hard to believe. Ash Wednesday begins on Thursday. On this last Sunday of Epiphany, our text invites, invites us up to this mountaintop along with Jesus, a few other disciples, Moses, Elijah. This is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And we heard in our gospel reading this morning that Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, and, and shining, transfigured. The word metamorphosis, like from one state to another, completely incorruptible, full of glory. There is an official transfiguration day in our church year that happens on August the 6th, but the text of the transfiguration, I think, rightly falls on this day, this transitional day from Epiphany into Lent. Into Lent. Well, as the story of Jesus unfolds, uh, it is here on the mountain that on this transfiguration day that we discover kind of the what next. And the what next is going to be our outline for today. We're going to look at what's next for Jesus, what's next for Peter, and what's next for us. So let's pray together as we open the word together. Father, we are in awe of your goodness and grace toward us. We ask that the Spirit would be our teacher, that Jesus would be the object of our affection, and obedience would be our faithful response as we open your word together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, our text is Mark chapter 9. Beginning at verse 2, you can put your finger there. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But our, but our first observation today is what's next for Jesus. There are two moments in the ministry of Jesus that are marked by the audible, affirming, confirming words of the Father. The first time the Father's voice is heard is in Jesus' baptism. We find a record of it in Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
after these words of commission from the Father, Jesus launches out for what we note as the first half of ministry, of proclaiming the kingdom of God. But when we arrive to this event, we now hear from the Father again. This time we find Jesus on top of a mountain with some disciples talking with Moses and Elijah when suddenly, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We should probably take note. Something's happening again. The father's voice here at the transfiguration actually marks uh, what Matthew so beautifully outlines in, in chapter 17 of Matthew, a midpoint of Jesus' ministry. This was no light and smoke halftime show, but rather it is the point that Jesus shifts from proclaiming the kingdom of God that was inaugurated at the baptism to now turning and beginning a journey, if you will, toward the cross, laying down his life. Because from here, he descends down the mountain and he's headed to the cross. What's next for Jesus is suffering and, and death and the cross. But secondly, there's also something really beautiful happening in this moment. What's next for Jesus is also the proclamation that he is a royal priest. We are told that then there appeared to him Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. I would love to know what that conversation was about. It's like, hey, good to see you again. What's, what's going on? Well, among the different thoughts about what was going on at this moment, the, the Bible Project team presents a compelling reason why these were there, specifically Moses. You may remember the, the story of Moses. It was leading people through the wilderness. And at some point along the way, the glory of God appears in a cloud, a familiar thought, up on a mountain, they send Moses up to meet with God, and here he's given the Ten Commandments, the law, and Moses, having spent 40 days up on the mountain in front of that consuming fire of God, he comes down and he is transformed. He is shining. He's got this glorious eminence about him. People couldn't look at him. And also, we're given to him this, the detailed uh, instruction about the highly adorned priests that were now to serve on behalf of the people in the presence of this glorious God. You see, Moses represents and prefigures Christ, the one who mediates before God. And so now when Jesus goes up to the mountain, he is transfigured before them, and his clothes become radiant and intensely white as no one could bleach them, as our text says. This radiance, this shining, directs us back to Moses. This experience and confers upon Jesus that he is now the high priest, the great high priest. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews confirms when he says in, in uh, chapter 3, for Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And much more glory as the builder of the house has much more honor of the house than itself. On in chapter 7, this becomes more evident when another priest, Jesus, he arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement, 
concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And there's another text in verse uh, 27. We'll just pass on. But you see that Jesus is confirmed to be our high priest. So what's next for Jesus is not only the cross, but he now serves as our royal high priest. And ultimately, he becomes the sacrifice. Well, in addition to Elijah and Moses, Jesus had taken up Peter and James and John to join with him. And there is certainly a what next for each of them, but for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at Peter. What's next for Peter? Well, we know that the audience of this event was the disciples, and I think specifically Peter. And why do I think this? Verse 1, we didn't read it this morning, but what does it say? After six days. Well, you're kind of curious what happened six days ago, right? So let's turn back and we look back at Mark 8. And Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. In another account, I believe in John, it says that, Peter, you are the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. This is that, that moment. Now we fast forward to six days, and there's Peter with Jesus. And he's privileged to see the glory now of this pre-incarnate Christ. We know that ultimately, eventually, this has a great impact on Peter's life. We, we already read it this morning in our Second Peter account. It refers back to this seminal moment. Second Peter Chapter 1, 16, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths that we made known to you, the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were, what? Eyewitnesses of the majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, we were with him on the holy mountain. But at this moment, on the mountain, his response seems a bit more of a bumbling fumble, if you will. Hey, can we build a tent for him? Uh, I don't know. Maybe there was a feast of tabernacles in their brain, and they thought that was the appropriate thing to do. Uh, maybe to memorialize the event so they wouldn't forget it. I, I don't know. But verse 6 does tell us something about what was going on. They did not know what to say because they were terrified. They were terrified. This mount, mountaintop experience was burned into the hearts of the disciples. And they, I think they probably at this point were ready, ready to explode with the story. This would certainly be Peter's confession, ratify what had happened earlier, Right? His career as the rock was now to be launched. We're going to get this thing going. And so on the way down the mountain, I'm sure there was this conversation going between them. We can't wait to tell anybody. But Jesus says, no, not yet. They're going, really? This, we've got all, not yet. Don't tell anyone. They left the mountain and they continued journeying with their teacher. And in the days that follow, the next significant interaction with Jesus and Peter is the day of the crucifixion. Do you remember what happened to Peter? All the disciples dispersed. 
Jesus or Peter is around this campfire. You know, what's next for Peter is actually denial. After all of that, denial. After Jesus was betrayed, excuse me, yes, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. They were scattered, and Peter denies him three times. The servant girl comes up to him, says, aren't you the guy? And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't even know this guy. He turned his back on the glory he had just witnessed. Not his proudest moment. Not the reaction he had planned when things got tough. Was it because he was alone now? Was, was he disillusioned or was it just fear? Peter's story does not end around the campfire. Does not end with his denial. After Jesus' resurrection, he appears to the disciples and most notably now to Peter. And perhaps hearkening back to those three denials, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And with great grace and compassion, he says, continue on, feed my sheep, rock, with great grace. Denial and grace. Well, Peter's not alone. <laughs> He's certainly not alone in his experience. It might be easy for us to peer over our little leather-bound Bibles and say, Peter, Peter, Come on, don't you have any memory at all? All the miracles, the glory? Well, here we are on the other side of the resurrection. We know that Jesus won, and yet we deny him. Not our proudest moments, not the reaction that we thought we would have when things got tough. Was it because we were alone? Did we feel cornered, disillusioned, fearful? You know your story. You know your moments of denial. I know mine. In fact, some of us, I think, could probably say it's now. I, I don't get it. But you know what? That's okay. Because the journey, because as we journey with Jesus... Let me remind us what is next for us, and that is grace. Same as for Peter. The only way we can come to Jesus, the only way is through his grace, not by our successes, not by our failures. As Peter receives the grace of Jesus, so can we. Not by, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but grace, unmerited, unearned, grace. Because of the grace work of Christ, we also can live into something that I think we often don't know we have, and that is we live into glory. The transfiguration of Jesus tells the kind of life that you and I will have when we follow Jesus. Paul writes this. See if this sounds familiar, this language and we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Who's he talking about? Us. 
it's us. We are being transformed from glory into glory. We too will become like him, transformed from one state to another into his likeness. We have and will have more glory. I don't know about you, but it kind of rubs me the wrong way. I kind of have this spiritual chafing that goes on when I hear, that's reserved for Jesus, but that's the promise right here. C.S. Lewis had a, had a similar response. He, like many of us, thinks kind of glory in, in two ways. Here's his quote. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous seems to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than of heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living light bulb? Electric light bulb, right? That's kind of, it's either one or the other, fame or brightness. When we, we don't have any other categories. Well, after further investigation, he discovers along with church fathers who also embrace this, and they say the idea of fame is where it is. Fame? Well, listen, it's not fame with us. It is fame with God. Approval from God. Appreciation from God. You see, in those who bear this glory, the glory of Christ, here's the hope that we have. We will receive God's approval one day. We receive it because of Christ. He will say one day, the loving words of the Father, he will say, well done, good and faithful servants. One more thing. We have grace. We have the glory of God, that, the glory of Christ in and through us. And finally, priesthood. You know, it's been God's plan all along that we would become a kingdom of priests. Listen to God's opening words to Moses up on that mountain that day. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now fast forward to Peter, the end of his life, as he no doubt relives and rehearses the promise of this royal priesthood of Jesus that was disclosed at the transfiguration. What does he say? But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness and into his light. You are priests. On this last Sunday of Epiphany, this season of manifesting the light of Christ into the world, a season of mission. You see, the transfiguration reminds us that our role of priests has a purpose. We shine forth in the glowing, transfigured lives of Jesus in us, in the world around us. What does that look like to the world when we shine the glory of Christ to the world? Because we are to proclaim the excellencies, the goodness, and the glory of Christ to the world. And so happy Quinqua 
Jezima Day. You see, as we follow Christ off of this mountain, we are invited to follow him to the cross, to, to take up our own cross. Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his ascension, embrace the grace he pours out to us to receive us in our lives of continual denial so that we might walk in obedience, being transformed into his glory and his likeness so that we live like priests, proclaiming him to the world until we are approved before the Father when he says, well done, good and faithful servants. That's what's next. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray our collect for Transfiguration Day again as it sums up so well. Grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.